I want to thank the Tom and the elders and uh, you, the people, for having me back here again this morning. I know that I am not worthy to stand up here, and never was. Um, I am a greedy, covetous, judgmental, prideful, lustful violator of God's word. And the only basis I have for standing up here is not my seminary degree or my doctorate, which is worthless, um, or the size of my library, but my only basis for standing up here is the same basis on which I will stand before God, and that is being wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so I want to open the word of God this morning. And uh, first of all, I want to read from Zechariah chapter 3. And if you're able, I'd like to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read first from Zechariah 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And then from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to, him, to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, 
And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Thank you, please be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for every portion of your word. Thank you for what it does for us and to us. And we thank you, Father, that you have given it to us so that we might be redeemed and be made in the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that might be another step in the accomplishment of that goal, even now as we hear your word. Through the blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's interesting to think that throughout his ministry, Jesus didn't do a lot of dead raising. Besides the instance of Lazarus, he raised the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler in Matthew 9 and in Luke 8, and the widow's son in Luke 9. And that's amazing when you think about it. If anything could lend credibility to the credentials of Jesus, it would be that he would do a lot of dead raising. And the big difference between those events and this one is that those events get mentions while this event gets a whole chapter. In those other instances, Jesus heals almost from the standpoint of detachment. They're lumped in with all the other healings, such as making the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. Everything that he includes on the list for John the Baptist to assuage John's doubts that yes, Jesus was the one that we are to look for, the promised Messiah. Those were all done as part of his messianic job description, as it were. But this is different. First, no one that he raised from the dead prior to this had been dead for four days in a tomb. This was unique among the resurrection accounts in the ministry of Jesus. That's one thing that was unique about this particular event. The other thing that's particular about this event is that John makes sure that Jesus loved, that we know that Jesus loved this family of these two sisters and this brother. In verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In verse 35, where Jesus wept, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Nowhere uh, else where, where Jesus healed someone or raised someone from the dead are we told that Jesus had an emotional investment or like a familial bond with those people. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the others, but it means he had a special love for this family. So what he was about to do was a personal sacrifice for him. Now, broadly speaking, Jesus' whole life from conception to death was a journey to the cross. 
But this was the first step of what is called the Via Dolorosa, the direct journey to the cross. The pain and the suffering of the cross was now beginning. With this pain and suffering of letting a loved one die and putting the sisters of that loved one through the grief that was inflicted by the grim reaper of death. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were like sisters and a brother to Jesus. But his mission of bringing glory to the Father and to himself as our Redeemer was far more important. Jesus uses language in this resurrection event that he didn't use with other resurrection accounts. Here he talks about his coming glory in connection with the raising of Lazarus. He says in verse 4, This sickness will not lead to death, but to God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And what's the glory that he's talking about? Well, there's an intermediate glory preceding the ultimate glory that he's talking about. In verse 40, after he commands that the stone be removed, and Martha says, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So there's that glory that we see when Lazarus is raised from the dead. But that's the glory that announces or proclaims a coming glory. It's the trumpet announcing the main event. And before I get into that, let's refresh our memories about the relationship that Jesus had with uh, this family of two sisters and this brother. Here's this family that Jesus deeply loves, a brother and two sisters. He's been in their home many times. He's had dinner with them. And so imagine them sitting around the table over a delicious dinner and building their bond as friends with one another, and Jesus helped them deal even with conflicts that they had with each other. Martha was an extroverted type A personality, always up and busy doing this and that, can't sit still. And Mary was, well, she could have been my sister. She was an introverted, contemplative type. She liked to read and have times alone to meditate. She's the one who, on another occasion, anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And one time while Martha was working hard in the kitchen, Mary, true to form, was sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him teach. And Martha complained to Jesus about Mary just sitting there instead of helping her. And Jesus said to Martha, Mary is actually doing what's more necessary. It's okay to be busy about the things, uh, about various things, as long as it's rooted in the worship of and fellowship with God. And fellowship with God was her priority. Just be careful, you don't just use sitting and meditating and fellowship with him in word and in prayer. So these sisters know Jesus loves them and their brother. And all they have to do is just let him know that their brother Lazarus is ill and he'll come running. It's interesting that it says that Jesus loved them and so he stayed two more days. I mean, it's like saying, you know, if you're a parent, you have a child that's sick, uh, you love this child, but because of that, you withhold the medicine that could make them well. And so that's what love is all about, right? That's the way we think about God. We're all theologians, and that theology of, is, is a theology that a lot of us have. If God loves me, then he'll like, be like some of my childhood heroes, like the Lone Ranger or Hopalong Cassidy or Captain Midnight, and he'll get there in the nick of time. And I know I'm dating myself, but you can tell with my bald head and my gray hair, 
I don't, I don't have to worry about that. Jesus does love them. He loves them deeply. But God has a different language and a different agenda. His agenda is all about his glory. And we know that they were expecting him to come running and heal their brother because they say so later in the story, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. That's what they were expecting. And that's what we all expect of God. We all have certain criteria in our minds of what it means for God to love us. And one of the first things we often think about when tragedy strikes us is, what did I do wrong? Or we fixate on something that we did do wrong in the past, and we say, well, God is angry with me for such and such. He's punishing me. Maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe he's abandoned me. And none of those things were true with Mary and Martha. Jesus wasn't punishing Mary for not helping Martha in the kitchen, and he wasn't punishing Martha for complaining about Mary. He still loves them, and because he loves them, he's joining them to himself in his plan to save them and to save the world from their sins. He says something strange here. He says, this sickness will not lead to death. Now, we know it did lead to death. Lazarus did die. And Lazarus, unlike others that Jesus raised from the dead, was buried, and he stayed buried for four days. Now, is Jesus lying? lying? Things that happen for our glory. The events will be different. The timing will be different. Our emotions will be different. Our glory has things done our way to make us feel good. Our glory would have Jesus get there in the nick of time to save Lazarus from dying. Our glory would have Mary and Martha breathe a sigh of relief and feel happy that Jesus didn't let Lazarus die. It would have Mary and Martha and Lazarus not to have to feel the pain and the grief of death. But God's glory has the opposite happen. When he says this sickness will not lead to death, he's talking about the ultimate end or goal of that sickness. Lazarus will die, but the end result of the sickness isn't death, but the glory of God. And more specifically, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus will die, but Lazarus will also live to the glory of God and to his son. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples come across a man born blind. And his disciples ask, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. Our glory, which does things our way, for our purposes, would have the man only be born blind if he or his parents had sinned, because that makes sense to us, that's logical. Or our glory would make sure the man was never born blind. And when you go through hard times and you don't understand what God is doing, one thing you can know for sure is that God is being glorified. Sometimes we get glimpses of that glory here and now, such as when Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed in Ecuador, back in the late 1950s by a tribe of backward warriors. But their death led to many in that tribe coming to Christ. Christ was glorified, and when God is glorified, we all win. 
God was glorified by Joseph's brothers in Genesis, selling him into slavery, and he became Pharaoh's right-hand man and saved his family from starving to death. And what did he say to his brothers? You meant what you did to me, that is, selling me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But there's more to the story. Why does God put Israel in Egypt? He put them there so that they would eventually be enslaved. And we look at that and we say, what? He put them there so they could be enslaved? And why did he do that? He did that so he could be glorified. He says that repeatedly to Moses. I'm going to show my glory to the Egyptians and to the world by every single plague that I bring on them to show that I'm God and their gods are not gods. Those are instances where we see God glorified in this life. But many times we don't see God being glorified and we accept by faith that one day we will. Sanctification, that is growing in Christ, requires that we exchange the language of the flesh for the language of the spirit. The language of the world for the language of heaven. The language of our will and our glory for God's will and God's glory. And the language of heaven is the language of God's glory above all else. And the words of Jesus are very different than the words of his disciples or of Mary and Martha. I often feel convicted about the way that I talk about things that I'm displeased with or things that inconvenience me because I realize that my language is not language that has God's glory as my greatest interest. And you might ask yourself, what do your words express in your heart's attitude to the circumstances of your life, do you seek the glory of God? Because the glory of God was of primary importance to Jesus and his mission. There's something revealed to us here about Jesus in this, what I call divine delay. Because Jesus was fully God, as well as fully man, there are many times, surprise, he acts like God. He purposely waits until Lazarus dies. Divine delay is characteristic of God in the Old Testament. From the time he promised Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan to the time that they actually received that inheritance was 430 years. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for God to give them their promised son who was born at a time when they were beyond childbearing years. Israel was under the boot hill of Pharaoh in Egypt as slaves for 230 years. Now imagine being an Israelite waiting for God to act. And what did God say that was all about? God's glory. He wanted Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and Israel to see his glory. Israel was in exile 70 years. And the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament when the people of Israel were waiting for their Messiah was 400 years. So over and over again, Jesus did or didn't do something because his time had not yet come. And yet scripture tells us that God is not slow in keeping his promises. Divine delay causes people to become impatient. Peter said the delay of Jesus' return will cause people to say, where's the promise of his coming? For us, God isn't only taking so long to do something that he's promised, but he's taking too long. And yet scripture tells us that God's timing is better than our timing. Our timing is terrible. Romans 5, 6, 
Paul says, for a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4, but when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might be adopted as sons with full rights. The appropriate time. If Jesus had come any time other than when he did, even though the world was desperate for his coming, it would have been an inappropriate time, and we all would have lost to, to eternal condemnation. God isn't a slave to the urgent. We are slaves to the urgent, but God isn't. God's actions are guided by what will serve his greatest glory, and when his glory is served, our eternal glory with Christ will also be served. The ultimate purpose Jesus had in this particular instance is to precipitate his own death. That's what I said. He came, or he was doing this in order to precipitate his own death, to get the authorities to do what they'd been wanting to do, but they couldn't find a way to do it. They'd been wanting to put him to death, and they were at a loss at exactly how to do it. But now they knew that they had to do something because this was the miracle of miracles. Jesus was forcing their hand to bring him to his hour of death. In John 12, the next chapter, he anticipates the cross. He knows what's coming. In verse 23, the time has come, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 27, he said, now my soul is greatly distressed. Now I ask you, where else was the soul of Jesus greatly distressed? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're, here, uh, we're hearing here a, a kind of a preview of Jesus' struggles in the garden before his trial and his crucifixion. And there he says to his father that if it's possible, let this cup of my death pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So listen very carefully to the similarity in John 12. And what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, but for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name how? And in verses 30 and 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Verse 32, now he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. Remember, Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all men to myself. The cross was where God the Father and God the Son were most brilliantly glorified to the eternal benefit of many. So do you see that this story about Lazarus isn't ultimately about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus? It's ultimately about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and by extension, the death and resurrection of those who look to him for salvation. The Jews had a superstitious belief that after three days, a dead person's spirit left his or her body. Resurrection was out of the question after three days. And many of them believed there would be a resurrection in the coming age, but not in this age, especially not after three days. Jesus waited for four days so that there would be no doubt that Lazarus was as dead as dead could be. So he proved himself to be the king of miracles. And if he's the king of miracles, the people are going to follow after him. The Romans are going to get upset. 
They're going to clamp down on the Jewish nation and these politicians, Jewish leaders, are, they're likely to lose their favored positions. Verse 53 says, so from that day they planned together to kill him. The death that Jesus was going to die would be horrendous because sin is horrendous. How bad is sin in the sight of God? It's bad. It's really bad. Far worse than we can ever imagine. One of the basic tenets of our faith is sovereign grace. This story of the raising of Lazarus is often used as an analogy to our complete dependence on God's sovereign grace to believe the gospel. Sovereign grace is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and he raised us up together with Christ. Okay? Prior to God's work of grace, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we're spiritually dead, and his word and dead people can't believe. Dead people cannot believe. You can stand over a person who is physically dead and tell them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for as long as you want, and they won't repent and believe. Not because they don't want to, but because they can't. And we often hear that dead people can't vote, not just because they're ineligible, but because they can't. They're dead to this world. In spirit, they're somewhere else, heaven or hell, but they're not in this world. Either by design or mistake, they may be counted on the voter rolls as a vote for a candidate, but God doesn't do that. God does not have dead voter rolls. People who are spiritually dead are dead to the kingdom of God, to the voice of God, to the things of God. They can't make themselves alive to God, have faith in Jesus, any more than Lazarus could raise himself from the dead. So what Lazarus needed was the voice of Jesus to raise him from the dead. That's the voice that brought the universe into existence out of nothing. The voice created light out of darkness, order out of chaos, and made the earth teem with life. Lazarus was dead until Jesus called him to life. And people are spiritually dead until Jesus calls them to spiritual life and enables them to believe in the word that's preached. Now, I believe that that's a legitimate analogy for sovereign grace and one that we often hear. Sovereign means God is in control, not just over some things, but over all things, including our ability to believe. But there's something that's left out of that analogy. It's the part in verses 38 and 39 where Jesus says to take away the stone, and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, by this time the body will have a bad smell because he's been buried four days. In the Greek, it says, he already stinks. In the King James Version, Lord, by this time, he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. The death and resurrection of Lazarus reveals to us our spiritual deadness, total reliance on the call of God to raise us to life so that we can believe, but what about the stench of his decomposing body? Does that have something to tell us about our condition? before a holy and a righteous God? Imagine yourself around the most foul odor you can think of. Now, I, 
I went on the internet and looked up, what are the worst smelling things that you can think of? I found 10 of them. I'm not gonna give you all of them, but I'll give you a few. First on the list was vomit. Second was a decomposing body. One person said there was a dead cat decomposing on the sidewalk five blocks away when I was walking one hot day, and I could smell it as if it was right next to me. Third was the spray of a skunk. Let your dog get sprayed by a skunk and then see how many baths you have to give them. Although one time I preached this sermon in another church, somebody came up to me and said, tomato juice. Use tomato juice on your dog. It'll get the, the, the smell away. Well, tomato juice isn't going to cleanse our sin. Others on the list are rotten eggs and then raw sewage. How about body odor? Like the person who said there was a hobo that lived in my apartment complex, and then one day I got stuck in the elevator with him, and oh, God, kill me. He smelled so bad, I just wanted to die. So how bad is the odor of our sin before a holy God? I'll give you an analogy Scripture gives us, and it's the one I read a little while ago in Zechariah 3. There's that description of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the throne of God with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the question is whether or not he's fit to be a high priest in his own righteousness or his own goodness, and he's not. It says Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. Filthy clothes. This is a high priest of God. How dare he come into God's presence in filthy clothes? In the Hebrew, the word for filthy is excrement. Joshua was wearing clothes covered in excrement. That's what his sin is like to God. But God rebukes Satan. He tells the angel of the Lord standing next to Joshua to take those clothes off of him and replace them with... with sacrifice for his sins. From clothes covered in excrement to wearing the finest clothing. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we were? People who literally stinketh to high heaven from our sin to people wearing the finest of clothing because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Another picture the Bible gives us is that of the corruption of the heart. Jesus said to the Pharisees, who outwardly lived this perfect life, these were exemplary people, the Pharisees, he calls them nothing but whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you look righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees had this superficial view of sin, that it's only what you can see on the outside. But the Bible tells us God looks on our hearts, and what he sees is repulsive. Paul in Philippians 3 said he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the best Jew you could ever hope to be. Why? Well, he says, because I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. You have the average Jew, and you have the Pharisee. He says, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. You couldn't find any fault with me, says Paul. But these assets I've come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities 
compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, now listen to this, indeed, I regard them all as dung or excrement that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of faith in Christ. Jesus said our hearts are cesspools of corruption. So what's a cesspool? A cesspool is an underground container for the uh, storage of liquid waste and sewage. Over the cesspool may be lots of green grass and vegetation, but down under is a place that you don't want to go and you don't want to see and you don't want to smell. And in Matthew 15, Jesus said, don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then passes out into the sewer? But the things that come out of the mouth from the heart and these things defile a person? In other words, instead of things going into the mouth and out into the sewer, they're coming out of the sewer, the heart, and out through the mouth. These are the things he says that defile a person. Evil ideas, ideas. God looks at your ideas. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. And he gives us a snapshot of the human heart where all those outward vile deeds have their root in the heart. Lord, we stinketh. You and I may not commit physical adultery, but we have the root of adultery, lust, in our hearts. Our thoughts can be adulterous. We may not commit murder, but we have the root of murder, hatred and envy in our hearts. Our thoughts can be murderous. We may not steal anything, but we have the root of theft, covetousness, and greed in our hearts. We just need the right time, the right place, the right circumstances, and these things will come out. I think of being out of the woods and you lift up a log or you're remodeling a house where you're tearing up a porch and suddenly to your shock, you see a nest of poisonous snakes slithering around over and under each other. Well, that's the human heart because John the Baptist even said to the crowds, you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. In Noah's day, just prior to the flood, Genesis 6 says, but the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. Lord, we stinketh. The Puritan preacher Ralph Robinson put it graphically. He said, sin is the most loathsome disease in all the world and the most infectious. The smallpox, the pestilence, the leprosy, these are delightful, pleasant diseases compared to sin. Sin pollutes everything it comes near. It pollutes the conscience, the ordinances, relations, persons, nations. He says, if it were possible that one drop of sin could enter heaven, it would turn heaven into hell. It's compared in scripture to all loathsome things. It is compared to the plague of pestilence and leprosy in 1 Kings 8.38. It's compared to poison in Psalm 140, verse 3, to the vomit of a dog in 2 Peter 2. It's called filthiness, abomination, lewdness. All the things that are loathsome in the world are used in Scripture to shadow out the loathsomeness of sin, close quote. COVID isn't the greatest enemy of our nation, 
nor is Russia or communist China, not even the Marxists in our midst. It's the brood of vipers escaping the nests of our hearts and infiltrating every aspect of our culture. In closing, here's the most graphic display of the repulsiveness of sin. The most graphic display is the mangled body of God's only begotten Son, pure, holy, righteous as the spotless Lamb of God, bleeding, broken, and dying on an instrument of shame and disgrace in our place. The foul odor of our sin is most evident in what we did to the Lord of glory with our sin. God's greatest glory is revealed in the cross of Christ because in the cross of Christ, we see everything we need to be saved. We see God's holiness and judgment on sin. We see God's mercy in providing his son as a substitute for our sins. We see his sovereignty in timing and providing that substitute. And we see God's love, both for his son who obeyed him all the way unto death and for us who put our faith in his perfect life and unblemished sacrifice. It's the cross of Christ that sets us free from the death that's brought on by our sin so that he can say to our sin and to the grave, as he said to those with Lazarus, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your glory, for you doing everything according to your glory. Forgive us for the times where we have not even looked or thought about your glory. And we thank you that even though your ways are oftentimes strange to us, nevertheless, they are perfectly always to your glory and for our greatest good. And we pray that you'll give us hearts to more deeply appreciate not only the depth of our sin, but also the unbounded grace that you show us in Jesus Christ who paid the perfect sacrifice for that sin. In his blessed name we pray, amen.